Welcome to Brand New Doctor. My name is Rola Carajo, doctor turned healthcare graphic designer and brand strategist. This is the show where we share big ideas and look for inspiration in all kinds of places to help you grow a fulfilling career in healthcare. Following a path to success is one thing, but carving your own is another. So this is for you if you want to go beyond book smart. I'm joined today by the wonderful Kate Kozart, calling in today from Tennessee. She is a pharmacist, an author, educator, and speaker. And as someone who is very passionate about the well-being of clinicians and students, she advocates for wellness in the workplace. Kate writes and speaks about well-being with a focus on resilience, burnout, psychological safety, and imposter syndrome, amongst other things. She has authored a chapter called Taming the Inner Critic in the book Things I Wish I Knew, which was released in 2023. Amazingly, Kate is balancing all of her advocacy with motherhood and a full-time clinical job. So I'm really excited to dive into this conversation with you, Kate. I think this is going to give people a whole new vocabulary to describe feelings that aren't often talked about in a clinical setting. And I can't wait to hear more of what you're working on at the moment as well. I know that you have an upcoming book. So yeah, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. So you're someone, as I mentioned, who speaks about imposter syndrome and you speak really eloquently about it. So can you share your personal experience with overcoming imposter syndrome and how that has helped you to get to where you are now? Absolutely. So for me, imposter syndrome was a term that I really hadn't heard until right around 2020. I'm sure I had had imposter thoughts leading up to that, but I never had a term. And then in 2020, everything changed. Not only was there this huge shift in healthcare and how we were providing care, but I also happened to have a brand new baby that was born about eight weeks before the pandemic hit. And so those two events happening right at the same time put me in a space of wondering if I could do it all, if I should even be in healthcare. Because as a mom, I didn't feel like I was keeping my baby safe if I went to work. And at work, I didn't feel like I was all there because I was just thinking about being at home. And so it really became this balance of, I don't think that I can succeed in both spaces. And so I read a book called Unlocking the Authentic Self. It's by Dr. Jennifer Hunt. Um, And she was the first one that really introduced me to this idea of what imposter syndrome is, these feelings of, feeling like you're just faking it all the time. And so once I had a term for what I was feeling every single day, I was able to really start digging into all the research that's out there and figure out how how can I get past what I'm feeling now? And so that was where it all started for me. For me, the implications of imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome where, you know, I was starting to really 
feel that I didn't want to fully engage. And we know that when you don't engage, you tend to burn out. And so having this ability to go, okay, I see what's happening. Let me develop a toolbox, so to speak, was life-changing. You know, I definitely think that I would not still be where I am. I don't think I would have stayed in healthcare had I not found the words for where I was at so that I could do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really powerful. I was I was just thinking today, having a conversation about how having a vocabulary for feelings that you have make them something legitimately that you can work through, actually. Until you have that, you will almost blame yourself or you might think that it's all in your head or it doesn't really truly exist. I don't know what it is about words, but they they just help to crystallize an idea and, and make it clear that this is a real thing and this is something that you can do something about. Well, I think one, it gives you power because now it's not just a feeling that you can't control and can't express, but you actually have a term. But also I think those terms unite us. You know, when when I think about my experience in this space specifically, knowing that that's what I felt, I was able to bring it up in other settings and find out that other people were feeling the same thing. You know, for me, one of one of my favorite lines that is in the chapter that I released last year is that others' empathy is the cure for our shame. You know, if we realize that there's this thing that we're facing and then we name it and then we welcome others into that circle with us, we often find out we aren't near as alone as we thought we were. Yeah, that's really, really powerful. I, I love that, that line as well. I remember that from reading. And it's so true that there is, there's oftentimes the feeling that we have to begin with, but there's also the, the shame that we attach to having a feeling as well. So we're kind of, there are two things that we need to be able to tackle. And as you say, naming it and then being able to share it with other people is a really great way to, to overcome that. So in this chapter, you, you wrote Taming Our Inner Critics. You talked about different strategies for doing just that. And I have some ideas of my own, but I'd love to know what does that term taming your inner critic mean to you? So for me, it means having that voice in your head finally be something that you recognize and that you can bring down when it starts to attack. Because I don't think any of us are ever going to completely shake those thoughts. You know, at least for me, we, I think about us in healthcare, right? We are in a profession where we feel like we need to be perfect a lot of the time. And I get it, right? Because patient care, patients' well-being does depend on us. And so we put so much pressure on ourselves. And so for me, it really came down to I need to figure out why I have this voice in my head 
that's telling me I'm not good enough. And then figure out how can I immediately start to shift that when those thoughts do appear? Because they're going to. I'm going to have a day where I realize, you know, there probably was a better option than what I did in this scenario. Um, Whether that's as a mom or as a clinician or as a wife, like all of those spaces, I have an inner critic voice that tells me that I could do better. But now I've learned to recognize it so that I can start to talk it down and make it somebody that is my friend and not someone who is a true critic that is not looking out for my best interest. Mm, I mean, I love hearing you talk about this because it's just not something that I have ever really heard so much from someone specifically in the clinical environment, you know, addressing these things really head on. Apart from, I would say, speaking with Amy's story, who we both know, it's just not a big conversation starter a lot of the time between clinicians to talk about these feelings necessarily. So it's really, it's really refreshing to to hear you talk about it in such kind of clear and and honest terms, you know. I think what I what I really wanted to ask you about, you know, with this idea of your inner critic is that in when it comes to healthcare, we are wanting to be critical thinkers. We're taught to be critical thinkers about things. And then we have to kind of reckon with that idea because there comes a point where being critical, being a critical thinker can be quite harmful to us, actually. It can go too far. So I just wonder what you think about that. How is it that we can kind of make that distinction and, you know, move away from criticism and, and, and keep it critical because we have to be critical thinkers, but not stray into actually harming ourselves with it. So I love that question. There is a rule in my house that I have started implementing with my six-year-old where I ask him on a regular basis, is it true? Is it kind? Is it helpful? If you can't click all three boxes, might not be the best thing to say. And I think that that same mindset can make us better in the workspace too, right? Because yes, we absolutely have to be critical thinkers. But then there are also some things that there's a time and place for, and especially when it comes to the way we speak to ourselves. Most of the time, that last part, is it helpful? It's not true. I personally, I have two questions that I ask myself on a regular basis when I start getting in that slump of starting to actually become critical of myself and like really have criticism toward myself. The first is I ask, would 10 out of 10 people agree with me right now? That was something I adopted very early as a clinician because, so I am a pharmacist, but in the position that I'm in in the U.S., I have a scope of practice. I prescribe all of that. So the first time I realized that I prescribed an insulin incorrectly, I freaked out. Now, it never got to the patient. The patient didn't take it, but that didn't matter because my inner critic was going, no good clinician ever could have made that mistake that you made. And so 
once I started letting others speak into that and realize, okay, 10 out of 10 people would not say that that was an unforgivable mistake. It helped me grow and really lean into a growth mindset instead of feeling like, well, I'm just not a great clinician and I never can be. I think that you talked about the 10 out of 10 kind of framing of things. Like would 10 out of 10 people agree with me in your chapter as well? I remember that that was a re I thought that was a fantastic one. There was another strategy that I loved. And by the way, to anyone listening, you absolutely should check this out because there it's a really, really, really helpful way to, to rethink and, and honestly how to tame your inner critic. So, so you have to check them out, but I just wanted to talk about one other strategy that I thought was really helpful. It was just this idea of naming your inner critic. Why do you think that works so well? Is this idea you can name your critic and then you can tell them to go away, <laughs> essentially. Why do you think that works so well? It works well for me. I think it works because it allows us to separate from those thoughts. Because all of a sudden, my thoughts, like I can't tell myself to get out of the room. If I can put those bot those thoughts into a box and say that was my inner critic speaking and she is not welcome here, then I can dismiss that thought process without feeling like I'm doing something that makes me even more not enough because now I'm beating myself up. I think that's why because if we look at it as well, I just am a really negative thinker and I talk really negatively to myself. Isn't that going to just cycle back to making us feel even more critical of ourselves because we're struggling to give ourselves compassion? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. It's a, It can become this kind of endless spiral, really. You beat yourself up and then you beat yourself up for beating yourself up and just very, very tiring. So I, I, I would say, Honestly, I think this has been one of the biggest things that has helped me in general, just this idea of separating myself from my thoughts. How can we move towards this idea of, of, of a growth mindset and the idea that failure is a good thing in an environment that is just so focused on getting it right every single time and that the risk of doing something wrong sometimes could lead to essentially really bad outcomes for for an innocent bystander because I think there is I think there's just kind of a, a mismatch and and you know people think that if if we're making mistakes in one area then we're making mistakes across the board so how how do you kind of handle that if people shoot that question towards you so I immediately think of it all starts with the learners we all know what it's like to be a student and an intern and a resident and go through those processes. What, what if the culture was safe enough to fail? You know, I am a big proponent of psychological safety because I think it is very hard to have an individual growth mindset outside a culture that is psychologically safe. You really need both. And so, I think that's where it starts is we have to let our learners know it is safe to fall flat on your face. It is safe to ask the question. 
Sometimes I may ask you to go look something up if you ask me, but a lot of times I'm going to understand why you are asking that in the time you are and want to go ahead and give you that answer. And I think the more of us younger clinicians are out there, the more we understand that it really is about creating an open learning environment. That's where the learning happens. You know, when I speak about psychological safety, I say, safer means more learning. And I wholeheartedly believe that. Whether that's my students, my residents, or me, if I don't feel safe to say, you know, actually, I don't know, let's look that up together. If I haven't created a space where it's okay for me to not know, then I'm not going to learn as much. So I try to be very intentional and normalize looking things up sometimes because it doesn't matter that I've been practicing for a decade. There are things I don't know. And that's okay. That should be the way it is in medicine because it changes every day. So at some point, I'm going to need to look up new things. If I'm not learning, that I'm not becoming better. And so I try to really create that space of, it's safe for you to ask as much as you need to. It's safe for me to admit when I don't know the answer. That's where it starts, in my opinion. And we're never going to get away from a toxic culture until we have clinicians all over the place going, this is a safe space. We can ask questions. We can admit mistakes. We can look things up. That would be, I think, relieving for everyone. Maybe more so even the people at the top, actually. So the the kind of the consultants, the the kind of the lead doctor and whatever department they're in, I think it would be a huge weight off their shoulders if they felt psychologically safe to admit when they weren't sure about something. There's this idea that you reach a certain point in your career and it's like you're an expert now. Experts know everything. And to show any kind of doubt or curiosity, maybe not curiosity, but doubt definitely, or just uncertainty about something, I think can feel or I imagine that can that can feel frightening to share with other people. So I think that's a wonderful thing that everyone at every level could benefit from. I'm curious, though, what we do when we are in a toxic environment, surrounded by people who don't believe the same thing, who, you know, believe in essentially hazing medical students. I don't know how else to put it, but just really, really making their lives difficult. How do we create that psychological safety for ourselves? if other people are unwilling to give it to us? So I think there's a couple of ways that we can do that. But I do want to mention a book that really talks about what I consider one of the basic pieces of psychological safety, which is inclusion. Um, Dr. Gina Cox is someone that I absolutely admire for the work that she does here. And one of the things that she talks about is how we have to insist that all employees are supported and not just the chosen few. And so I think that that starts 
early as we realize there's someone not at the table that should be, let me make sure that they get an invite. We can do that as early as during our training, right? Go, hey, shouldn't we bring in so-and-so? That helps make sure that all voices get heard because if we only continue to bring in the same voices that have trained the same way, maybe even in the same institution, then how are we ever going to grow in a positive way? And so I just wanted to shout out that book because I think that even though that is a lot about the institution, it also speaks to something that personally we should be watching for. Who's, Who's included in the conversation? Is it just a few people or is it everyone? We need all voices to be heard. Now, for ourselves, if we're trying to create psychological safety, obviously there are things that are within our control and there are things that are not. One of the factors that really does promote psychological safety is relatedness or connection. So going ahead and trying to have strong bonds with other people, I do think is a very important piece that we can do for ourselves because Just like the situation where I asked a friend, have you ever done this? Because I messed this order up. And I honestly felt like there was quality improvement check that we could implement that could prevent that. But I was so scared to even bring it up until I knew someone else had done it too. And so having connection so that maybe our empathy cures each other's shame, but also We know that there's someone that we can be our whole self with, failure and all. I think that does so much for our mindset. One other thing that I do think is really cool is something that Georgetown University is teaching, which is this method called stop, talk, and roll. Basically, if you're in a situation where you don't feel safe, like you stop the conversation and then you talk through what made you not feel safe. And even though I think that's a hard thing to implement, I do think that that thought of, I'm allowed to say, I need to stop this conversation and then we can come back to it. I think we should be able to allow that for ourselves, for our learners. Mm. Yeah, and I, I I appreciate that it's like the the stopping of the conversation. I think you were talking about this as well. Was just that's that might not be the easiest the easiest thing to do, but we you know if they if they have a kind of policy in place about this kind of thing, if they make it very clear that you can do this, I think it may be slow for people to adopt, but hopefully with time, we'll get to a point where we feel safe enough to be like, actually, I think I need, I think we should pause the conversation here because I'm not feeling like this is headed in the right direction, essentially. What I want to talk to you about is a huge topic, burnout, which often comes up on this, on this podcast, because I think that it's just, I think maybe worse than ever. I'm not sure if it's being reported more or if just the the circumstances are worse, I think it's a combination of both of these things. And 
the thing is with burnout, obviously, as we know, clinicians, we do, we do have to work hard because we have skills that we have to master and we need to sharpen them over time, essentially. But there is a difference, right, between working hard and being overworked. But how can we make that distinction for ourselves in a system, especially in a system that only asks more of us and doesn't tend to validate our feelings when we say that there's too much? I think that one is we need to spread awareness of the data that we do have. You know, there is data that shows residents that work more than 60 hours a week are more likely to experience imposter phenomenon. You feel like a fake, you try to overwork to compensate, and then you feel even more like a fake. So we need to be aware that burning ourselves out is actually not helping us. There was another survey that showed 13% of people who are burned out are less confident in their performance. And I think we, as clinicians, we do tend to stretch ourselves. We, a lot of times, have that driven spirit, right? And we want to do all of these incredible things, but we don't realize that rest is an essential part of it. And then sometimes our environments don't teach us that. And so it's something where we have to be aware of and share the knowledge that burning out is not helpful. You know, yes, there is such a thing as good stress, right? We know that moderate stress is going to spark your interest, keep you from getting bored. Peak performance is typically under some degree of stress and accountability, right? But it can go too far really quickly, and especially in helping professions and especially in healthcare. I think that we get to a point of we become so afraid of making mistakes that we work beyond our limits. We stop sleeping well. We become anxious. And then we burn out because we have let all of those factors build up. And so for me, there are a couple of things that I do that I encourage because I know that I am not in a position of leadership. I can't do anything except for be an example. So one is making sure that I do take time to rest and recover. There were times in my training where I had extremely stressful events and didn't feel that I was allowed to rest. So I will tell you one specific scenario. When I was a resident, the the way that our model of residency was, was there was really only one of us there on the weekend um, covering the services that we were covering. And there was a day that I spent about 90 minutes in a code. It was very traumatic um, because we kept getting him back and then losing him again. And it was very intense. We knew that we needed to try to get him across the street to a hospital with a higher level of care. And so we were just trying to like get him stable enough to get him in an ambulance and like literally go across the road. But I remember when that situation was over, all I could think was, I've got to go write TPN orders. 
I couldn't stop and rest and feel that it was okay to do that because all I could think of is what had piled up over the last 90 minutes. Because when you make your schedule of how you're going to fit all the things into your day, a code is not in there. You know, you don't, you don't expect it. You don't know when you're going to be in that situation. And especially one that lasts for a very long time. Like I did not realize that I never processed the intensity of that day until years later. And then I was like, oh, I truly never recovered from all of the emotion of that day because it was like, okay, next task. I've got this and this and this waiting on me. And so I think one is setting the example that it's okay to rest and recover when something traumatic is going on, whether that's after a specific event, just taking a few minutes to sit, whether that's going, I need a day off to process and sit with this. We've got to start advocating for ourselves so that others know that they have permission to do that. Also, one thing that I am a huge proponent of is using your leave because I know, so I'm in the U.S. and up until the last couple of years, there was no paid maternity leave for my position. So my first two children, I had to completely like save every bit of leave and then burn all of it to be able to stay home for eight or 12 weeks. And so that was something that like I never gave myself permission to use leave because I was like, I'm going to need that to take a maternity leave at some point. And so now that I am on the other end and not planning to have any more kids, and now there is a paid maternity leave policy at my workplace. Now I feel so much more free to go, I'm going to schedule a mental health day. I'm going to say this day, I'm just going to take off with nothing that I have to do. It's going to be a day for what, what does my soul need? Do I want to just spend that day writing? Do I want to go clean out my closet? Whatever it is that I feel in that moment is the right thing to do, I can do it because I've penciled in a day that has no commitment. And so I try to do that fairly often, like every couple of months, pick a day like that so that I give myself that freedom to just know, like, I have something to look forward to. That day is mine. I love that. I think, I think that's such a, a necessary thing to do is to kind of build up that agency, I suppose I want to say, the idea that we give ourselves permission to feel things, to process things. Because as you say, you can start to feel a little bit owned, like you're owned by the system and that you're, you know, like you're basically just an agent of of wherever you're working. And like you said, you had to go on and you had to do some other administrative task. And because you're on their their time, you think you're on someone else's time, you're not allowed to do your own thing on their time. But it's all your time, really, because you're choosing to be there in the first place, right? And so I think it's a, 
as you say, it's it's a it's a matter of empowering ourselves and doing these things. I think is a really great way to enforce reinforce that idea that we can choose how we spend our time. I know you're working really hard on your next book. You're writing. I know you're an early bird and you're waking up super early to work on this. So can you tell us a little bit about it? What what's what's in store for your readers? So I wanted a book that really talked about how do we overcome imposter syndrome and self-doubt. And it has practical tools that anyone can use, but obviously most of my experience is from the healthcare space. So it includes real stories, real testimonials, so to speak, of how some of these tools helped me, helped residents, helped other pharmacists I know, like really trying to incorporate real people to show like these are things that real people are doing that are effective in helping us get past some of the way that we talk to ourselves or think about ourselves. And so Taming the Inner Critic was actually a chapter that I had already written for this at the time that I ended up meeting some folks that were like, hey, we're going to do this compilation work. And so I was like, all right, as long as I can keep it for this, I'll put it into that. It's it's a condensed version because they they gave me a word count. So I had to cut some things out. So there's definitely more in store for that chapter in this book. But then also I talk a lot about how the way that we process praise, how do we deal with criticism from others? Like how can we help change those things to make us a more well-rounded, emotionally stable person who's not falling victim to self-criticism as much. And I talk a lot about ways that I reframe things, ways that people that I've kind of taught some of these tools to use them in their lives. So it's it's going to be a fun read, I think, and give a lot of really practical information. I think there's about 40 tools total in the book. So there's a lot of yeah, very usable information, bite-size chunks so that you can read little bits you know, throughout your day. So that's that's the the overall kind of overarching thing. I just want us to be able to feel hope again. When can we expect the, the new book to come out or do you have kind of a, a date in mind or is this still a work in progress? So it is a work in progress. Tentatively, my plan was May. I will be very transparent, though. Things have been a little sidetracked over this last year. I've lost a couple of people that were very close to me. Mm-hmm. We actually had a tornado hit our town as well. Oh, so so lots of things that kind of changed my focus a little bit. So it may not be by May. I do promise you it will be in 2024, even if that happens to be later in the year. Okay, wonderful. We'll keep an eye out for that. And, you know, so sorry to hear about the things that have been going on for you. I think it's really wonderful that you are open and sharing that with other people because so often we are hearing when people do big things, but we don't know what goes on behind the scenes and when someone puts something out, we have no idea whether that was exactly planned the way that they wanted it to be a lot of the time. But 
for all intents and purposes, it was. And so, so that's, I mean, that's a real comfort, I think, to a lot of other people as well, to, to know that things don't always work out the way that you want them to, but you can always come back to those goals and you can work towards them regardless of what's happening. Yeah. So final question. I would love you to imagine for a moment that you are the dean of a university or college and can influence the curriculum for healthcare students in any way that you see fit. What would you want them to learn about workplace well-being and how would you want them to learn it to help them to lead more fulfilling and impactful careers? Oh, that's so good. So number one, patients are people. So are we. We have to embrace our humanity. We have to not just see the patient as a person, but realize that it's okay for us to be people too. I also think that I would really, really want to emphasize the fact that seeking help is okay. The fact is, mental health is something that we don't talk about enough, in my opinion. Um, Mental well-being for people in the clinical space is almost taboo because we are so scared that our own privileges might be revoked if we admit to a struggle. And I think that's very unfortunate because there are so many times that we cope with alcohol or some other unhealthy behavior because we're scared to have a diagnosis on our own record. And so I think that encouraging help-seeking behavior would be one of my top priorities. Like making that a safe thing to do where you seek help and there's not repercussions where now you're not going to be able to be a physician, be a pharmacist, whatever training you're in, but you are embraced as a person who is seeking their own well-being and that does not jeopardize you. The, the last piece that I think about is the fact that, you know, being engaged in your workplace, having a community and trying to avoid emotional exhaustion, like those three pieces or factors that weave together into more problems with burnout, psychological safety, imposter phenomenon. Like if we are exhausted, if we're not engaged, if we don't have a sense of community and relatedness, we're not safe, we're burned out, and we're probably going to feel like imposters. And so I would really try to prioritize those things. We need to be engaged. We need to have people in our corner and we have to rest. So those are the big takeaways that I would want to weave into every aspect of curriculum if that was within my power. Yeah, I love that. And I I, I love that you say weaving that into the curriculum. I completely agree. I don't think that this should be a footnote or an afterthought. It absolutely needs to be integrated in every way with the things that we're learning about. I mean, even I, I even think back to the way that, you know, you, you learn something new and then you're afraid that you have that, that problem yourself. I mean, the, I feel like there should even be a checkpoint where 
we're allowed to just be like, let me voice my concerns about this thing. Because to be honest with you, you know, people, a lot of the time, it can even be just traumatizing for people to learn about things that family members have had in their past. So just weaving in this kind of, this, this, mental health kind of check-in with everything that we're learning I think is a really beautiful idea so thank you so much for sharing that Kate it's been wonderful to have you on the show thank you thank you so much for having me thank you for listening to this episode of Brand New Doctor I hope it inspired you in your personal journey check out the notes for a summary of the show with all of the important links and if you enjoyed this 